Hi, and welcome to NACIO Voices, where we talk all things state IT. I'm Amy Glasscock at our headquarters in Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm Matt Pincus here in Washington, D.C. This past August, Texas joined a growing list of state and local governments struck by debilitating ransomware attacks. In fact, more than 600 government entities, healthcare providers, and school districts, colleges, and universities have all been affected by ransomware in the first nine months of 2019. According to Cybersecurity Ventures, ransomware damages are predicted to rise to $11.5 billion in 2019, up $3.5 billion from last year. With ransomware attacks on the rise, combined with cybersecurity's long tenure as the top issue for our nation's state CIOs, we wanted to bring on two experts to discuss their own experiences and key lessons learned. We're very excited to be joined today by Texas CIO Todd Kimbriel and Nancy Reynosek, the Chief Information Security Officer in Texas. Todd and Nancy, thank you so much for joining us on NASIO Voices and Happy New Year. Thank you very much. Happy New Year to everybody. Good morning. Hey, guys. So before we dive right into uh, this discussion on ransomware, can you both tell us briefly how you ended up in your current positions at the Texas Department of Information Resources? Uh, sure, I'd love to, but uh, I'm not sure brief is the word that I would use to describe it. But uh, basically, I spent most of my career in private sector and was between jobs uh, coming out of telecom as a result of a merger, which is pretty predominant in the telecom industry. And the uh, company I was working for moved up to Colorado. And I wanted to stay here in Austin and uh, took a couple of months off and uh, had a friend that uh, that I used to support in uh, telecom who started working for uh, the Department of Information Resources, and uh, they were looking for somebody to run the IT shop, and he reached out, and so that's how I made my connection here at DIR. So I started actually running IT internally at uh, at DIR, and then through a series of retirements and promotions, ended up uh, working all the way up to the interim executive director and uh, and then the, the state CIO. Great. And um, I had been with the state for a very long time, and at a previous job, I had put in a governance risk and compliance solution, and DIR was um, looking to implement a similar solution here. So that's um, how I connected and took the job. And again, as Todd, through a series of retirements and resignations, I moved up, and I'm now the chief information security officer. So our and common then, story is being in the right place at the right time. Yes. Right. <laughs> And how long and how long have you guys been in your current positions? Uh, I've been here since 2008, so uh, 11 years, uh, and I've been the state CIO for five various different titles, but uh, deputy executive director since 2015. And I started in 2013, and I've been in my position close to three years now. So definitely on the longer end of the of the tenure for uh, CIO and, and CISOs uh, across the country. Some grizzled veterans, if you will. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Stress grizzled. Yeah, please. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about ransomware. Let's go back to August 16th last summer. Can you guys take us through what happened? Um, sir, sure, I'll start. I, I was actually in uh, in Arizona. The my, my older brother passed away and I was with family at the time. And I got a call at about eight o'clock in the morning from uh, from Nancy and uh, Amanda Amanda Crawford, our executive director, and who uh, who had been uh, informed of of the event, and uh, they brought me into a conference call. So my my participation in the the actual event was 
was very limited, but I specifically recall that conversation very well of of thinking, uh, oh my gosh, this is it's finally here. The thing that we all dread and hope will never happen has now happened. So that was that was kind of my first reaction to to that call. I'll hand it off to Nancy, who can kind of get into more detail, as she was the one that received the the early warning call. Right, and and I was actually teleworking, and my deputy called me, Andy Bennett. He's the deputy CISO here in Texas. Um, it was 8.36. I remember the exact time he called me. And at the time, we had been informed by the Department of Public Safety that eight uh, municipalities had been impacted uh, with ransomware. By about 10.30, that had grown to 23. And we had been keeping Amanda and Todd informed throughout the morning. And when we learned that it had hit some SCADA systems, some utilities, Amanda reached out to the governor's office who had also been involved and notified from the very beginning. And they chose to do a disaster declaration and and activate the state operations center, which is part of the Texas Division of Emergency Management. So by noon, we had, we call them TDM, the Division of Emergency Management. Um, They were in the process of separating from the Department of Public Safety and going under the Texas A&M system. So there was a Texas A&M system team there, their security operations and forensics units, incident response, and then the military department. So we worked with them. And then along with the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, FEMA was there and some other um, agencies in Texas. So we all gathered at the Security Operations Center and started trying to gather information, determine what had happened, determine the total number of uh, entities involved, and went on from there. So that was Friday at noon. So in probably about an hour of the governor making the call, we had the SOC up and operational, and the teams were on site. From there, we had to basically kind of prioritize where we needed to go, how many teams we needed out in the field, and then we worked on from there. Yeah, I would add two two or three clarifying points on that. One, the SOC is really our state operations center. That's the central hub for all, uh, previously all natural disaster response for uh, uh, response and recovery, first responders, coordination across the state for a statewide event. But also that our Texas military department is the Texas National Guard, which has both the Air Guard and the uh, Army Guard as opposed to the National Guard. But then lastly, one, one really important distinction is that, as Nancy said, the governor declared a, uh, an elevated state of disaster for a cyber event. And we had legislation that was passed uh, last session, I, I believe it was Senate Bill 64, that empowered our governor to declare a disaster for a cyber event. And I think we're the only state in the country that has empowered the governor to do so. So it's uh, uh, that was a, a big differentiator and a key part of the success that we had in responding to this event. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you guys were fairly prepared to deal with this. Were you familiar with this kind of coordinated cyber attack, or do you think it was the systems you had in place to deal with other kinds of disasters? No, we had uh, there was legislation uh, three sessions ago, I believe, that required us, or two sessions ago, and, and we're a biennial, so uh, one session is really a two-year period. I think it was two sessions ago that 
required uh, DIR and, and specifically Nancy's organization to create a statewide incident response plan for a cyber event. Mm-hmm. We had had some that we started back in 2012 that were kind of in a draft state. But with this legislation, it forced us to formally engage with the military department, with the Department of Public Safety, with the Department of Emergency Management to actually construct a for real plan of how we would anticipate responding to a a large scale statewide cybersecurity incident. And uh, that plan was constructed by Nancy and her team about two years ago. And uh, that plan was then exercised through a series of tabletop uh, exercises to ensure that it could be, in fact, operationalized in the event that it was ever pulled off the shelf. And so I think largely that was the reason why we we were prepared, that uh, we had staff and, and uh, our partners in this uh, event uh, all prepared to come together in the State Operations Center and respond to uh, Nancy's deputy, Andy Bennett, who was command and control for the event in the State Operations Center. And that's the first time that that we've had, uh, you know, DIR or uh, really leading uh, a statewide uh, incident response support. Mm-hmm. That's great. Can you discuss your relationship with some of those small cities and towns prior to the attacks and whether that communication coordination assistance has improved or changed since August? Yeah, so that's a it's a short answer. We don't have a relationship with with, with lower uh, political subdivisions. Statutorily, we don't we don't have any authority over local government. We certainly try and promote what we can to serve local government. Nancy and her team do reach out regularly, and and we have local government that uh, you know cities and counties that do have isolated events, and periodically they may reach out to to Nancy and her team to seek assistance. When they call us, we always answer the call. I will say that Nancy and her team are really very good about answering the call when somebody gives us a call, but statutorily, they have no obligation to do so. Uh, and certainly, I think one of the learnings that Nancy and her team have had to deal with with this particular ransomware event was the fact that when when the SOC activates, it's typically uh, as a result of a natural event, a natural disaster. And with natural disasters, there is physical evidence of the scope and extent of the disaster, meaning you can see the flood, you can see the rain, you can see the fire. Uh, in the case of cyber, it's invisible. And, and that creates a whole different uh, sort of paradigm. And what we discovered is that communication, while Nancy and her team and the SOC communicated actively with every organization that was victimized by this ransomware attack, what we found is it was very difficult to communicate with all of the other localities that were not engaged or not in the uh, line of fire for this particular event. And and we found subsequently that we do need to structure communication channels to more expediently communicate to those organizations that are not involved to simply let them know that they're not involved. We got feedback from a number of organizations that their mayors and city councils were pressuring their their CIOs or their their CISOs for more information about whether or not they were going to be victimized. Were they in the line of fire? Uh, And it was very difficult to communicate broadly to those that were not involved that that they were not involved. Um, Short of saying, I think Nancy uh, Nancy and her team put out several press releases and posted those on our website that said, we have spoken to everybody who's engaged. uh, And if we have not spoken to you, then you're not involved. And, And of course, people don't always passively go to a site to check that information. So 
certainly one of our learnings is uh, communication is a key part of, of letting people know that either they are or they are not involved. So at, at NASIO, you both know that we've we've long been encouraging that each state adopt a comprehensive incident response plan. And I know you guys have, have referenced this plan that Nancy has developed. So Nancy, uh, this question's, I guess, for you. Can you talk about some of the key points of the incident response plan that you were statutorily required to develop? I guess in short, did it work? Um, yes, it did work. And while we were required to develop this plan, the other parties, DPS, TDM, and the military department, weren't required to participate with us necessarily. So that was um, the first thing was assembling this team and who willingly, I mean, these, these people are very passionate about protecting the state. They willingly came to the table and, you know, we met pretty much every other week for, for, for quite a while to just go through and develop this plan. And it basically, you know, goes through who's responsible for what, who takes the lead, you know, what resources are available. And in particular, in engaging the state guard, how do we go about that process? And we were fortunate that um, we had had another incident at another county um, earlier in the summer where the county judge actually declared a disaster and had to go through the process to engage the guard. So we were familiar then with what the process was, um, who had to be involved, and then going through the contractual agreement so that they could be paid for the work they were doing. It took a lot of cooperative effort, but the end result was very well accomplished. And as a result, too, after the fact, we continue to meet to improve the plan so that we're prepared even uh, more so for the next one. I would uh, actually add on to that, that the plan itself, having having a plan, so put people in a room and put a plan on a whiteboard and document it is not enough. It really is about the relationships. When you get into a, a crisis situation, people have to know each other. You can't execute a plan with people that don't already have familiarity with that plan, but more importantly, familiarity with each other in a collaborative environment. They have to trust each other. They have to know how to engage with each other. You have to know how to bring other forces into play in a response effort as it escalates or de-escalates. So it, it was years building those relationships. For example, we spent a lot of time working with our military department, the National Guard, to build out their cyber incident response packages that they use to deploy. Uh, and we used that heavily during the deployment uh, against this particular ransomware event. We leveraged those teams. Understanding those packages and how, those, how they get engaged and, uh, was a critical part of being uh, able to respond quickly. The other thing is practicing. And so we actually got involved in a multi-jurisdictional cyber exercise, three-day exercise that simulated a advanced cyber attack in the middle of a hurricane for the city of Houston, the port of Houston, Harris County. And we had multiple jurisdictions involved. We planned it for about a year and exercised that uh, in coordination with those political subdivisions, but also largely led by the Army Cyber Institute, ACI, uh, that operates out of West Point who are looking for opportunities around the country to engage in similar municipal-based cyber exercises with multi-jurisdictional participation that simulates a cyber attack on top of or in the midst of a, a natural disaster. And that was an enormous learning opportunity for us to understand 
truly how uh, how people interact and, and collaborate in the, in response efforts for things like this. One other thing, we were in this security operations center, and this group is very well prepared in terms of logistics and coordination and communication. So they had some really fabulous tools that were at our disposal to track what was going on, communicate with the field, map out where everything stood, where each municipality stood in terms of remediation. Had people been met with? Did we know the extent? What was the priority? Basically, kind of a chat room-like tool so that as people made it out to these far-reaching locations in Texas, that they could report back to everyone where they were, what their status was, et cetera, down to even feeding us and making sure that we used hand sanitizer all day long so that we didn't make each other sick being in this bunker under the ground. So I can't underplay the role that the Division of Emergency Management played. They've had a lot of expertise in dealing with long-term incidents such as Hurricane Harvey. Their role in this was instrumental in our success as well. Sure. So, I mean, the themes that that I'm hearing both of you talk about are, you know, relationship building and, and management training, and then also this whole of state approach, which we've really talked about. But it was more than that in, in your case with the ransomware attack, because you're also working with federal partners. You mentioned communication and how it was important not only to communicate to the municipalities and, and townships that were impacted, but also the ones that weren't. Can you talk about sort of as you look back on the attack, whether or not the notion of communicating with your other, uh, with your fellow CISOs and the CIOs um, in other states is important? Is that something that you're doing? Because as we know, ransomware, not just limited to Texas, pretty much every single state has been impacted. So what is that information sharing like? Um, Yeah, we have definitely grown in regards to this. We are very limited still now to the amount of information we can share regarding the the incident. Um, And we did get permission to share with the CISOs from other states with some of the CISOs within the state. However, we haven't been able to share much beyond that. And it took a while to get that permission. But as a result, we've really increased the information sharing that's going on with the other state CISOs. As a matter of fact, last Friday evening, Um, We had an hour-long conference call about another major incident going on in another state. So we're really trying to communicate and share information in as timely a fashion as we can so that other states are prepared should somebody go after them. And I can say from a CIO perspective, I had that Friday uh, on August 16th, I had probably six or seven phone calls with six or seven other CIOs who were inquiring and wanted to, one, offering assistance, which is awesome. That's the great thing about the CIO community that NASIO has pulled together. But two, trying to ascertain whether or not there was a, a growing threat that may go more broadly than uh, than it did. So it was very helpful, I think, for, uh, for those phone calls for me to be able to give them a sense of perspective that it's been contained without revealing too much information because at the time, you know, we had very limited information about sure. the threat vector and the signatures of the attack and things like that. But what was clear that was helpful to share was it had been contained, and, and that was really important for other CIOs to know. 
Great. Todd and Nancy, as you guys know, we're seeing more and more states moving away from the owner-operator model to the CIO as broker model because it reduces costs and complexity, but that also means that there is a potential for additional cyber vulnerabilities. So with that in mind, can you give some advice on a few things that other governments or companies or even individuals could do when it comes to basic cyber hygiene? Yeah, so I think have a plan, right? I mean, everything comes down to, to have a plan, prepare, and, and be prepared and practiced. With our current next-gen data center procurement, when it's done next fall, we will actually have a single award for an underlying security function that all of the other contract awardees will have to adhere to from a standards perspective. So we're actually really evolving that model to make sure that, that cyber is a part of everything that we do that nobody is exempt from having, you know, cyber preparation, building in defense in depth, and that we're coordinating and feeding all of the, the logs, the syslogs, the SIEM data, everything feeds back into a single control point. So we will have a single place of accountability to really holistically uh, ensure that everything that we do is, is layered in this fabric of cybersecurity protection. I want to add to that, that what you can do when it comes to cyber hygiene I've kind of got a list of like six things. First, patching and managing your vulnerabilities. Very important to have current software, current hardware, up-to-date antivirus and um, endpoint detection and response capabilities. Paying attention to identity management. A lot of these are coming in through getting passwords and especially privileged users, making sure that you separate the privileged user function from your everyday operations and that your your privileged users aren't always using their privileged user account when they're simply doing their email or operating in a normal environment. Making sure you have good backups and making sure that they're segregated from your network and making sure that, that you have an off-site copy that's current and tested. Segmenting your networks. Some places were hit more than others. A lot of that may have to do with um, whether your networks are segmented or whether they can get to the whole of your network from one ingress point. And then email filtering, um, making sure you've got good filters on your email so that you can eliminate a lot of the phishing attempts that come in. So those are a few things. But one thing that I really want to stress is if you're using a managed service provider is making sure you've got a good contract and that those things are stipulated in that contract and that they have some damages should an event occur. Sure. Right. So the final thing we'd like to do on the podcast today is we conclude each episode with something we call the lightning round. And so I'm going to ask you both a few, <laughs> a few rapid fire questions. Actually, they're not very rapid or, or fireable, but uh, they, are, they are questions. And we do want to hear answers from both of you. So I'm going to start with these three questions. So the first question that I have is, do either of you have any New Year's resolutions? I usually don't do them because I never keep them. But um, <laughs> were I to, it would be be kind. I resolve not to have any. Fair, fair <laughs> enough. And Nancy, Nancy, you are very kind. Come on. All right. Second question. If you could eat dinner with any famous person, either living or dead, who would you pick and why? Oh, there's so many people, but I would go with Anthony Bourdain. So yeah. he just, uh, he's traveled the world. I love his uh, No Reservation show. He enjoys 
having hard conversations with people. He seems honest. He's done some amazing shows and, and had some amazing dialogue with amazing people. He loves beer. He loves wine. He loves the party. He's engaging. He's my hero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would pick my mom and she's been gone a long time. And if I'd only known then what I know now with age, it'd be kind of fabulous to speak with her now. Very good answers. And the final question in the lightning round, name the place you want to visit that you've never been before. I'll start uh, Scotland. I used to collect um, Scottish antique, Scottish jewelry, and I just am amazed by the artisan and craftsmanship. And I've heard it's a beautiful country and I'd love to go. Uh, For me, actually, it's two places. It's uh, North Dakota and South Dakota. I have a bucket list item of being in every uh, every state. So I've been to 48 states. I have two states left to check on my, my bucket list, and that's North and South Dakota. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for really taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, we very much appreciate it. You bet. Thank you, guys, and Happy New Year to everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks guys. again, guys. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Nasio Voices. Stay tuned for our next episode. And don't forget to subscribe. And thanks to everyone who has already done so. 